the civil rights movement through the life of Ethel Payne, the first lady of the black press. What I liked about her life from a writer's point of view and also why I titled the book Eye on the Struggle is it allows me as a biographer to write her story and it's a compelling story that just writes itself but at the same time provide us with a vision of what the civil rights movement looked like to an African-American woman traveling the path of the movement back then. That's biographer James McGrath Morris. His book, Eye on the Struggle, has just been published by HarperCollins. This is Writer's Voice. Thanks for joining us this hour. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Great civil rights struggles of the mid-20th century, with their emphasis on nonviolent political action, depended crucially on press coverage to gain impact and, ultimately, success. But their stories may have gone untold were it not for newspapers like the Chicago Defender and other organs of the black press. They broke the stories that the white mainstream medium picked up and disseminated to a wider audience yet few in that wider audience even knew of the existence of the black press. Perhaps no reporter was more important than Ethel Payne. Dubbed the first lady of the black press, she broke the big stories. She told the world about a young leader emerging out of the civil rights movement in Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr. She told the story of Emmett Till's mother, who had to view the badly mutilated body of her 14-year-old son after the brutal beating that took his life. The first African-American woman to be part of the Washington Press Corps, Ethel Payne courageously buttonholed presidents with searching questions about racial prejudice and civil rights. Unlike many of her colleagues then and now, she was no mere stenographer, but held the powerful to account for their policies and views. Yet few Americans today have ever heard of Ethel Payne, much less understood the giant role she played in reporting the story and advancing the agenda of civil rights in America. Now, a terrific biography of Payne has just come out from HarperCollins, written by my guest this hour, James McGrath Morris. Through Payne's riveting personal story, he takes the reader on an inspiring journey through the civil rights movement and deepens our understanding of issues that continue to resonate strongly today. The book is Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. James McGrath Morris, welcome to Writer's Voice. This is a remarkable story you tell about Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press, you begin Eyes on the Struggle with the signing by Lyndon Johnson of the Civil Rights Act a little over 50 years ago. Why did you start there? Well, you know, the writers who do biographies struggle with the problem of trying to create an engaging story that will cause people to turn the pages. And traditionally, because we are really bound to write a book in chronological order, in the old days, biographies started with their birth and then a chapter we jokingly referred to as the begatting chapter, which went back to five generations and who came over on what ship. And uh, readers, frankly, got bored with this approach. Um, 
uh, uh, older readers would say, oh, we'll give them credence, we'll flip through the pages and get to the story. And so the, the style change isn't unique to me. It's a lot of writers. We try to find a moment that's important in a person's life and that's engaging and representative of their overall life to use as either a prologue or as a first chapter. And so in the case of Ethel Payne, who for many readers will not be a known figure, I mean, the sad thing of sad legacy of segregation is for African Americans, they'll know who she is. But for most white readers who didn't have a chance to read the black press, this is a figure they don't know who it is. So by bringing her to the moment in 1964 when LBJ is signing the Seminole Act, the Civil Rights Act, and placing her in that room, I'm able to introduce all the cast of characters and highlight her significance that the president had chosen her to be among those people to get a pen and thus create a kind of enigmatic uh, figure coming out of the civil rights movement that hopefully when people finish the short prologue, they say, gee, I really would like to know about this person, and then I can get on with the childhood and the schooling and all of that and get to the story. And she really is an emblematic figure. Uh, as you say, you know, I didn't know who she was. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, and most white folks probably don't, but she was an enormously important figure, one of the first journalists to cover Martin Luther King, in fact. Yeah, she, you know, this, it's such an interesting world looking back now. Um, when you look back at history, you're often astounded at how we put up with things. But back then, segregation was so deep in our country, not just in the South, where it was legally enforced, but in the North, where it was socially enforced, that these parallel institutions grew up. In Chicago, African Americans who were shut out from most of the good jobs and, and banks and things like that created their own parallel society in, in an area on the South Side they called Bronzeville, where they had their own banks, their own funeral homes, their own taxis, and their own newspapers. And so when Payne went to work for the Chicago Defender and rose up as a very eminent journalist, she was eminent only to 15% of the population. And that population, of course, was deeply interested in the progress in civil rights. And it's a long and complicated story, but through uh, good fortune, she ends up being a Washington correspondent for the Chicago Defender, ends up covering the fight in the legislature and in the presidency, but then as well gets sent off to the front line at enormous risk to go to Montgomery, where she meets Martin Luther King and covers the Montgomery bus boycott, or to Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957 during that school desegregation crisis. So she combined both. And what I liked about her life from a writer's point of view, and also why I titled the book Eye on the Struggle, it allows me as a biographer to write her story, and it's a compelling story that just writes itself, but at the same time provide us with a vision of what the civil rights movement looked like to an African-American woman traveling the path of the movement back then. So instead of reading what I, as a 60-year-old white guy, think and about something that occurred 50 years ago, the book allows me to let readers see what Ethel Payne saw and how she saw it. And that's why the biographies kind of has two purposes. One, it's Ethel Payne's story, but secondly, it's Ethel Payne's vision and, and view of the civil rights movement. And that's why I thought the title, Eye on the Struggle, fits so well. Yeah, and now I'm actually going to ask you a little bit about the begat part of the story. Sure, please do. So give us a sense of her origins and her family. It was very important and influential for her. 
tell us about them and, and how they influenced the course of her history. Oh, they, her mother was a tremendous influence. Her family was typical of many African-American families at the beginning of the century when this huge migration occurred and African-Americans left the South and moved to Chicago and Detroit and other northern cities in just huge numbers. The Illinois train, um, Central Illinois line, I guess it was, was just packed with people. And that's how her mother and father ended up coming to Chicago in 1905. And like a young couple setting out to have children, they need to look for housing. And Chicago was deeply segregated, but not by law, but by practice. So if you went to a realtor or a landlord, there were only certain places that blacks could rent housing. And they were extraordinarily fortunate because they settled in an area called West Englewood in um, Chicago. And unlike the rest of Southside Chicago, it was not solidly black. Their, their little tiny neighborhood was African-American, but they were surrounded by white neighborhoods. Um, Ethel Payne described it as living on an island surrounded by a sea of whiteness. And the consequence for this, for her, of this for her was that she ended up attending schools that were majority white. And what that meant at that time is she attended better schools than she could have if she'd lived in a different part of South Side Chicago. And her mother was an extraordinarily strong believer. Who She'd been a Latin teacher, a strong believer in education. Her father, Zethel Payne's father, who was a Pullman porter, died very young and leaving the family with a number of children and a mother to support themselves, particularly during the Depression, which would have been you know, very hard. But education was always um, touted as important. Reading was important. Ethel Payne just loved little women. And in fact, it's interesting, she loved it because she's very much like, um, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, what is it, Little Joe? The Joe, yeah. Joe, exactly. yeah, sorry, Joe, in the uh, book. And so she had two, you know, these two interesting influences, her mother, who urged all of her children on with education, and the fact that she had better education than other uh, African-Americans could have in Chicago. She also gained a, um, another skill by having been in school with, with uh, white students. Um, she was able to operate much more successfully in both cultures than a child who'd been only raised in the African neighborhoods of the South Side. So she, when she left high school, she was well-equipped. And then this extraordinary little tidbit came along that um, as a biographer, you know, when you hear something, you always question it, particularly if it sounds too good. Um, the famous motto that I learned as a journalist was when my editor says, said to me 30 or 40 years ago, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> so when I heard that Ethel Payne had had this, one of the same English teachers that Ernest Hemingway had had, and that this teacher had urged her on, I thought, this is too good a story. It just doesn't work. Well, it turns out to be true. Um, this teacher had left Oak Park, where, where she had taught Hemingway, and came to uh, teach at Lindblom High School, where Payne was, and ended up being her English teacher and encouraged her to go on. So all of these elements gave a very, um, a very different start in life for Ethel Payne. Um, and it didn't at first lead her very far, but it equipped her for success. Yeah, she didn't do so well in school, almost serendipitously, you'd have to say, because, you know, one would have expected her to do well with the kind of history that she had, but she didn't, and that led her abroad. It did. Um, 
she started off life as an ambition to become a lawyer, and like a lot of young people, um, in, in fairness to her, it was kind of unrealistic. She didn't have the academic abilities um, to do that. She loved writing, and she loved some of the things, but she wasn't going to do well enough in school. And there was already, of course, as you can imagine, enormous barriers to anyone um, being black going to law school at that point. Um, but she ended up, she never gave up on, on writing. She tried to write for and published a number of pieces of fiction for Abbott's Monthly, which was kind of a New Yorker of African Americans, in fact, where Richard Wright published his first story. Um, and she just kept knocking on the door. Um, but while she was doing that, she took jobs from everything from working in a nursery school to ending up working in the Chicago Public Library System. The way I put it is that um, I have found out that seven out of ten employed black women at her time in Chicago worked as domestic servants. Black, a black professional woman had as much chance of getting a job as you know finding a warm day in the middle of the winter in Chicago. So there she was doing all these various jobs. She became active in the civil rights movement, worked on the famous March on Washington that A. Philip Randolph was leading in 1940. But she still wasn't going anywhere professionally. And she saw an ad to become a service club hostess. This is the, these clubs that were set up during World War II all around the world so that uh, soldiers would have places to go for entertainment, for music, uh, for food. Um, and after World War II, they continued, um, first under the Red Cross and then under the military. And because the troops were segregated, they maintained black clubs, black service clubs, and white service clubs. Now, somebody sharp right now, this is 1948 that she's applying, somebody sharp among our listeners is going to say, well, wait a second, Truman in 1948 desegregated the troops. That's true, but Douglas MacArthur, the general in Japan, refused to do it. So in Japan, there was still a need for black hostesses and white hostesses. So in a very gutsy move, she gets and takes this job and you know, goes all the way to Japan which for somebody growing up in Southside Chicago is, is quite a leap. And she ends up becoming a service club hostess in Tokyo for three years. And it's a transformative experience, and it also leads to her career as a journalist. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with James McGrath Morris about his biography of Ethel Payne, Eyes on the Struggle. Before you tell us exactly how she did get to the Chicago Defender, tell us yeah. more about the paper itself and the black press in general. Sure. Well, it began in 1827, and it has a really storied history of African Americans publishing their own newspapers. And many newspapers were abolition papers, and then later papers advocating civil rights. But there was a, a reason why papers like the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, and others evolved was as a very strong economic need. African Americans could not get their wedding announcements, their high school graduation, their sports scores, or anything into white papers. White papers like the Chicago Tribune never covered any social news of any sort uh, from the South Side. The only time an African American might be mentioned was if something happened like a crime. So there was an economic basis for somebody to start a newspaper like the Chicago Defender at the beginning of the 20th century because there was a need for this kind of news. But also the paper became an important source of information for people in that uh, the white papers, the, what was mainstream media, wasn't covering civil rights, wasn't covering the lynchings in the South wasn't covering all these kinds of things. And so these papers became very important in providing news that really mattered to its readers. 
and they changed the landscape of America. As Isabel Wilkinson demonstrated in her book, The Warmth of Other Summers, I think I have the title right, you know, this incredible migration of African-Americans leaving the South and going to the North and changing the urban landscape was prompted in part by the Chicago Defender, because every week this newspaper would have stories about life in the North, which was segregated, but it wasn't as dangerous and it was more economically advantageous than remaining in the South. And African Americans, you know, dropped their implements and hopped on the train and headed North in great part because of what they read in the Defender. The way to understand this is that the Chicago Defender is no more merely a Chicago paper than, say, the New York Times is merely a New York paper. It was circulated nationally. But in the South, it was at some risk to carry a copy of the Chicago Defender. In fact, there were communities where the law barred you from being able to have a copy. So you couldn't have it mailed to you because the mail person would report to the authorities or to uh, the Ku Klux Klan or others that, you know, so-and-so down the street is getting the Chicago Defender by mail. So Pullman porters, like, like Ethel's dad, would carry bundles of these papers. Pullman porters, I should explain, are the men who staffed the Pullman cars in which uh, business people and other travelers slept on. And the, those days, it was very fashionable and efficient. If you, let's say, were a Chicago life insurance salesman, you had a meeting in New York, you'd take the overnight train, sleep in lovely accommodations, and wake up rested and ready for action. Well, that ride, you're, the person who serviced you during that ride was a Pullman porter. They were all African-Americans. And they formed a very strong union and became a strong political force. Well, these men carried bundles of the paper with them south and left them at barbershops throughout the south. So people informally subscribed to the Chicago Defender, and they'd come in on a Saturday to get their hair cut and shave and pick up their copy. And this newspaper had this tremendous influence. So... When she ends up, as uh, you will be talking about in a few minutes, getting a job on the Chicago Defender, she's getting the premier job in African-American journalism. Yeah, and just to stay with the Pullman Porters, or at least A. Philip Randolph, before she was a journalist, she was already an activist, as you said before. Yeah. Worked on this march on Washington, which probably most of us don't even know about. You know, the Pullman Porters were so important to the civil rights movement in that time through their leader, A. Philip Randolph. Talk a little bit about her activism in the movement and some of the struggles she went through because she was a woman. Well, yeah, it's a classic story. In 1940, when we began to gear up to uh, produce the armaments necessary for the war, um, we still had high unemployment in the United States. The Depression hadn't completely ended, and what was ending it was all this government spending to make armament. But the people who were getting these new jobs were whites, and African Americans were, were excluded in large numbers. In fact, um, there's, uh, I think a reporter went out to Los Angeles to where the um, airplanes were being built and found one, as they would have said back then, Negro who was employed as a janitor, and all the other jobs had gone to whites. So um, Philip Randolph and others met with President Roosevelt and said, you know, you've got to do something about this. And Roosevelt was very uncomfortable about desegregating the troops and, and doing much. And so rather than give in, Randolph organized what was then going to be called the March on Washington. 
And he was planning on bringing hundreds of thousands, possibly a million African Americans on Washington. Well, this terrified Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, because Washington, first of all, was a segregated city. So where would these people stay? The possibility of conflict was enormous. And the country was getting ready to go to war. And the last thing the president wanted was some sort of you know, racial strife in the nation's capital. So he gave in and signed a executive order that did not desegregate the troops, but it, it created the Fair Employment Commission. And the idea was to increase hiring among African Americans in the munitions factories. It had an effect, but what Randolph continued to do was he called off the march, but kept the March on Washington movement going as a group. And they had rallies around the country. And Ethel Payne became very active in that, in Chicago, organizing a huge rally at the Coliseum and working as an activist. But what she discovered, as many other women did, and suffragettes discovered this in the 19th century, a movement for civil rights doesn't often include a movement for gender equality. And she found that the women in her movement were primarily being used to type and do menial work. And she, being rather tough cookie, said no to Philip Randolph. I won't put up with this, and if you only use me this way, I'm not going to be part of it. So she got her way and ended up having a greater leadership role, but it was at considerable risk to stand up to such a venerated leader. And this becomes, you know, this isn't uncommon in 1940. It, it remains a part of the civil rights movement's um, I don't know if you want to call it a problem, but right up in, into the 60s, there was always conflict between the role of women and men in the civil rights movement. And most of the men were quite guilty of not appreciating women's importance. And there's a moment in 1963 when the, the what we now think of as the March on Washington, which is really modeled on the one that Philip Randolph had to try to do 23 years earlier, in which um, a, a black female activist writes to... Uh, Randolph says, please don't hold your press conference at the National Press Club. They don't allow women on the main floor. And he said, well, you'll be able to sit on the balcony and, and listen in. And she said, yeah, well, we fought to not sit in the back of the bus. Don't you get it? And in a way, they didn't, a lot of these men. And Ethel Payne, it was a contradiction she had to resolve because her first loyalty was to the civil rights struggle, and yet you know, she was just instinctively a, a feminist, could not keep that one down. How did she resolve this contradiction politically in her own approach to the struggle? You know, I'm not sure how I can answer that in some ways. I can, let me start with the personal thing. By remaining a professional, ambitious, and successful woman in the 1950s, she gave up the possibility of marriage and a family uh, by her own admission. Men in the 1950s were really put off by professional women, and that was more so true in the African-American community. So when she embarked on this, I think she pretty much knew what she was giving up to do it. But every step of the way, she always had to stand up for both things, both letting her be admitted, letting her be at the table, so to speak, in Washington as a, a black reporter, but secondly, as a female reporter. And when the civil rights movement gets going in the South, the paper doesn't want to send her South, whereas they're more than willing to send men reporters South. They fear for her safety. It's a very paternalistic treatment of her, considering how successful she'd been. But all along, she always had both fights to wage. And I don't mean fights in the sense that she herself was becoming a leader of, the, of a rights movement, just simply to do her job. She had to stand up for herself as both a female and as a, as a black. 
If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with James McGrath Morris about his terrific biography of Ethel Payne, who was the first lady of the black press, Eyes on the Struggle. Now, let's get to her work as part of the Washington Press Corps, the first black woman to be part of the Washington Press Corps, and almost the first woman. Well, she's the second. When she arrives in Washington in 1950, let's see, three to take on the job as a Washington correspondent for the Chicago Defender. There were three African-Americans in the press corps at that point. Louis Latour, who was a very conservative Republican and was not in any way rocking the boat. Alice Dunningham, who'd come up from Kentucky and worked for some of the Negro news services. And then Ethel Payne joined them. But the difference between her and the other two was quite tremendous in that, as I said, Latour wasn't really going to ask anything provocative. Alice Dunningham had a good, strong backbone, but had really not at that point asked anything very difficult of the president and had mostly covered things in a more passive way. But what Arthur Payne discovered in her first few months working in the Washington Press Corps, particularly at the White House, is the power of asking questions. And I think the moment this realization came across was in February of 1954, And Payne had noticed that the Republicans had had their Lincoln Day festivities that year in a huge scale. 8,000 people had showed up at uh, an arena for an event at which Eisenhower came. And they had a lot to celebrate. Eisenhower was the first Republican president in a long time. And so they were very happy, and they were having this massive celebration, and they invited several college choirs to come and sing. And one of the college choirs they invited was Howard University, traditionally black, uh, historically black college in Washington, D.C. For circumstances that aren't clear, the Howard University choir was barred from getting in the building, so they couldn't sing. So Payne was really angry, and she made her way to one of the press conferences as an accredited reporter and got the president's attention and asked a question in which she said, you were at this thing, you know, what's going on with the Howard University Choir being barred? Well, the president, you know, first said, if that happened, I apologize, which was quite amazing. But he, as president, admitted, you know, I don't know what goes on with all of the things, but I'll look into it. Well... What happened at that moment is that all the other papers around the country had to write about the incident because she had asked it at a national press conference with the president. The Washington Post, which prides itself on covering local stories, had missed the story entirely. It was now backpedaling and covering the story of what happened to the Howard Choir. So from that moment on, Payne realized that when you're in the White House press corps, merely asking a good question about civil rights meant that all the other papers had to cover it, and it ended up helping put civil rights issues on the national agenda. These were questions that the white press weren't asking, not because they were malicious, but because they didn't think of them as being important to their readership. Whereas, of course, being a reporter from the Chicago Defender and being African-American in a city in which she couldn't even get a cab, issues of equality were very important. And so she brought those to the press conferences, asked those questions, and in a way changed the national agenda merely by knowing how to ask questions. And that's in part where her journalistic genius shone through. That is a terrific story. And we are talking with James McGrath Morris about the first lady of the black press, Ethel Payne. His wonderful biography of her is Eye on the Struggle. Stay tuned for more after the break. Oh, oh, freedom, 
Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Go home to my Lord and be free. No more moaning. No more moaning over me. And before I. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. My guest this hour is biographer James McGrath Morris. We're talking about the great black reporter Ethel Payne. She was the Washington Press Corps correspondent for the Chicago Defender, the black press's paper of record from the years of the Great Migration through the Civil Rights Movement. Morris's biography of Payne is Eye on the Struggle. Now, this was also the McCarthy period of yeah. anti-communist paranoia and persecution. Other than the case of Paul Robeson, the great black singer, activist, and actor, there's, I think, very little awareness about McCarthyism against blacks. There's a shocking case in your book, the case of Annie Lee Moss, a yeah. very lowly government official who was, you know, set upon by the McCarthy um, machine. Talk about that and about Payne's role in bringing that to light. Well, when she first came to Washington, McCarthy hearings were underway, and the mainstream press was paying enormous attention to it. But Payne pointed out that the reason the black press wasn't as much interested in it is she felt that African Americans didn't seem to have this great fear of communists that the whites did. In fact, she recalls in a conversation, she recalls that when people were evicted back in Chicago, she remembered communists would come in and move the furniture in and out and help them with food. So they hardly seemed to fret. But in 1954, that changed when the McCarthy Committee called up Annie Lee Moss, who was a 49-year-old African-American widowed mother who had worked in the Pentagon. And they believed that she was the linchpin in helping getting some secrets, you know, the very typical story of the McCarthy Committee. So they held a set of hearings. They called her up on the carpet. And she's a, a very small, diminutive woman and to have the television cameras rolling, and McCarthy swears her in and says, you know, did you have coded message that you might have passed on? And so these questions being asked, of course, by Roy Cohen, the famous chief counsel, and he asks her the typical questions, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party, and that sort of thing. And then it finally comes out that one of the key pains they have to this testimony that they believe links her to the communists is a man named Robert Hall. So they ask her, is that Robert Hall that you know a colored man? Yes, sir. Are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure he's colored. Well, it turns out the man they were talking about was white, so they hadn't even done their work. And then it really falls apart when she's asked about espionage, and she has to ask, what does that word mean? And it finally the hearing comes to a close. Because they say, uh, Stuart Symington, the senator from uh, Missouri, says, did you, did you ever, to the best of your knowledge, ever talk to a communist of life in your life? And she says, no, sir, not to my knowledge. Did you ever hear of Karl Marx? And she says, who's that? 
So the hall burst into laughter. And you know, one of the most destructive powers of people who often do wrong in our society is humor. And it was the this moment, along with several others, because the Edward R. Murrow showed it, was the beginning of the end for McCarthy and his power, because he made such a mistake in going after this little doting widow woman who was clueless as to what was going on. Instead of having nailed some great spy, he just brought in a woman who knew nothing. And Ethel Payne was... Didn't she interview Annie Lee Moss? Oh, yeah. She was there. She was the only... I couldn't find any other African-American newspapers who paid attention to this case. And she covered it extensively. In fact, I, I found a bit of the film footage of Edward R. Murrow, and you could see Ethel Payne at the table behind. And she also later runs into her again because there's a movie made about McCarthyism that, that misportrays her. But the, the point was that... For Ethel Payne, news had to be seen through the filter of what her readers were interested in. And McCarthyism had not been a threat until that moment. And when it became involved in African American in Washington, then it made sense for Ethel Payne to go and cover it, and she did. Now, she had some problems in, in covering these issues. Uh, as a Washington reporter, of course, you have to have access to the president, and uh, she really tangled with Eisenhower. Yes, she certainly did tangle. Well, there were, there were two problems as a Washington correspondent. There were senators and, and members of the House who would simply not speak to you if you're African-American. So when she walked the halls of Congress with, like, Clarence Mitchell, who was the lobbyist for the NAACP, and they saw a senator, if she went up to that senator, the senator would just simply walk by. Um, they were using a word that I won't use on the air to describe blacks on the floor of the Senate at that time. So socially, you know, this isn't a matter of law. It's just, can you imagine how courageous you have to be to work in those circumstances? So back at the White House, she's continuing her questioning of the president, and the president keeps allowing it, which is, a, I think, a tactical mistake. He keeps calling on her. And finally, one day, she asks a question about segregation on interstate travel. Now, you know, the, the federal government controls matters that involve interstate matters, not in-state matters. And she had an opinion that had been given to a House committee that the president had within his power to ban segregation on interstate travel. So she asked a question very point-blank of the president. And for some reason, it really hit a nerve. And he straightened up in a sort of military posture and said to her, you know, I don't know where you, you know, emphasizing you, believe that you and all these kinds of things uh, and responding to the question. But he says the administration is going to do what it thinks is right and proper and not what any sort of special interest might want. Well, the, the press room went dead silent because there were two things. Eisenhower had gotten really furious at the question, which was unusual. And secondly, he implied that black equality was almost like a special interest, you know, that these, these might be some farmers, wheat farmers, wanting some special treatment. And the next day, the headlines were always things like, you know, uh, reporter irks Ike. You know, in those days, they loved to have sort of uh, rhyming headlines. <laughs> um, but it had a tremendous effect. And it, that was, in some ways, the end of her questioning, because Eisenhower chose for a long time not to ask questions of her anymore. And his press secretary tried to get her credentials taken away. And Drew Pearson, who was famous for his muckraking articles, exposed this little back room dealings where the, the press secretary 
tried to, in a sense, get her unaccredited so she couldn't come to the White House anymore. And to their great relief, uh, this coincidentally is the time where Ethel Payne then begins to leave Washington a lot to go to Montgomery, where the civil rights movement uh, bus boycott is beginning, and to go to Alabama, where the University of Alabama is being segregated. So um, Eisenhower wasn't as confronted as frequently by looking out on that hall and suddenly seeing Ethel Payne in the back jumping up and down saying, Mr. President, Mr. President. <laughs> but Ethel Payne had a little bit better success, at least for a while, with Richard Nixon. Uh, she, she thought he would advance the cause of equal rights. Why did she think that? What happened during the Nixon administration um, th- that followed up on the Eisenhower one? Yeah, that may be the hardest story I had to tell because we tend to see things from our current experience. And most readers, if I say Richard Nixon, they remember the Vietnam War, they remember in Watergate. But they don't remember the Richard Nixon before that. And that's the Richard Nixon of the 1950s. He was an ardent anti-communist, ran some vicious campaigns in which he used the Red Scare to get ahead. But he was much more an advocate of civil rights than any of the Democrats were at that time. The House and Senate committees were controlled by Southern senators and Southern representatives who'd been in office for years, and they controlled those chambers with tight fists, and they were not interested in ending any form of segregation in the South whatsoever, and every bill was going to be kept in committee by them. Well, in 1957 rolls around, and because of the successes of the civil rights movement, for the first time, Congress is considering in 100 years a civil rights bill. It was going to be called the 1957 Civil Rights Act that would advance the cause of civil rights. Now, it gets a little complicated because a lot of these laws have to do with what states normally get to do. So these civil rights legislation was empowering the federal government to go into states to ensure against discrimination, to ensure voting rights acts. So Southerners, if they believed the law was going to pass, were going to change the law, in a sense gut it, by making little changes such as that everybody would be required to have a jury trial. The jury trial would be entirely white, so anyone accused of discrimination would get off, these kinds of little things. And what Payne started reporting is that the people who we now think of as the heroes of the civil rights movement, people like Senator John F. Kennedy or Senator uh, Lyndon Johnson, were actually the leading people who gutted the bill at that time. And the one who was standing up for the bill was Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon, in her view, was really the one who was in favor of civil rights at that moment, and the people who later would end up getting all his credit were the opponents. But she also had a relationship with Richard Nixon uh, that not many people would have known about. It sounds odd that an African-American reporter in the 1950s developed almost a friendship with this white vice president who was serving under Eisenhower. But it began because in 1957, Ghana became the first sub-Saharan country to become free from colonial rule. And to recognize that Eisenhower dispatched Nixon to represent the United States. And all these famous African Americans came, like Martin Luther King and others, to for this moment, which was very exciting because it meant a black democracy was going to take power. And Payne came as a reporter. And so she witnessed the first time that King and Nixon met, which is, of course, a deliciously ironic story. They have to go to Africa to meet. And King says to him, you know, Nixon, it's great you've come here to see this uh, bit of freedom. Maybe you'll, uh, maybe your boss, the president, will come to the South and see that what we're facing. 
And Nixon adroitly says, well, I don't think he could do that right away, but why don't you come and have a meeting with me in Washington? And this is one of the first breakthroughs. It's King's first meeting with a member of the administration, and Ethel Payne is there to cover it. And then, um, so, and then later King gets to meet with Eisenhower. So Ethel Payne views Nixon um, as really a supporter of civil rights, and in a sense, if we could just shorten it, as a good guy. So a year after the trip to Ghana, she and Simeon Booker, who is a reporter for Jet Magazine, an African-American magazine of tremendous circulation, they decide to have a reunion of everybody who went to cover the trip to Ghana. That means both white and black reporters. And they're going to have the reunion at Ethel Payne's apartment. So Simeon says, why don't you invite the vice president? And Payne you know, laughs and says, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. You know, what chance would he have coming? So she sends off an invitation, and she gets a call from the, the vice president's office that, indeed, Richard and Pat Nixon would be attending the party. And so he does, and he doesn't just stop in like a lot of politicians do. He stays for most of the evening having a great time. He brings them a bottle of bourbon. They all chat up a great storm. Jet Magazine covers it, and I'm, the quote is in my book, so I'm going to be a little off, but I'll be able to get it pretty close. The headline is something like, in first, Vice President Visits Home of Negro in Washington. I mean, those, that's the period mm-hmm. we're talking about. And Richard Nixon had also taken off the covenant on his house that barred selling his house to an African-American. And so, in a sense, this is the good Nixon before the bad Nixon, and it's a good moment, and Ethel Payne was there. Amazing story. And if you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with James McGrath Morris about Ethel Payne. She was the first lady of the black press. His book is, his biography is Eyes on the Struggle. Um, So she told so many of the signature stories of the civil rights movement. The story of Emmett Till was really brought to light by her. Is that right? Well, you know, biographers have this tendency to claim that their subjects did everything. If you write a biography of Roosevelt, he ended the Depression and won the war single-handedly. She had a role in the story, but was um, really the one who brought it to life. It was really uh, Emmett Till's mother, Mammy Brady, um, Bradley, sorry, who, who did that. People have probably forgotten the incident uh, or the details of the incident, but Emmett Till was a kid from Chicago, a teenager from Southside, who went to the South for summer, uh, stayed with his family in the summer. And he either stared or wolf-whistled or made some sort of comment to a young white woman in a store. And he is taken away at night, and his body is found several days later in the Tallahatchie River. And this had happened a lot, uh, and I don't mean to diminish it, but this sort of violence had happened a lot. What was different is when Till's body was brought back to Chicago, his mother, Mammy Bradley, ordered that the casket be opened for viewing. And so what people saw was his disfigured head, and Jet Magazine published photographs of the mutilated corpse. Again, majority, even mainstream media like white newspapers didn't publish any of these. Well, this shocked the nation, much like the, these awful killings in the Mideast are now shocking people. They couldn't believe that this had happened. So there was enormous pressure on the government to try the men who were accused of this act. And the first trial didn't work. There was another trial coming up, and this is where Ethel Payne played a role. What had happened was that the Jackson Daily News was, in a way, trying to set the ground to make it hard for the second trial. So they published a copyright story about Emmett Till's father. 
And Matil's father had died in World War II, and his mother, Mammy, had not known any of the details of her de- of his death. Well, it turns out he was court-martialed and executed, accused of rape in Italy for having raped, uh, conviction was for having raped two women in Italy. Well, this had not been known, and so the paper published a headline, Till's dad raped two women, murdered a third in Italy. In short, the insinuation was black son was like black father, unable to restrain himself around white women. So, you know, um, is really, you know, he's the guilty one. Well, this slur, no one knew where it came from, and Payne was able to figure out that it was Senator Eastland's office that had obtained these things using the power of being a senator from the Army and had leaked them to the paper. So as a result, Mammy Bradley, who'd never known how her husband died, was deeply grateful. It also helped undermine this kind of slur that was used before the trial, and she granted Ethel Payne uh, a huge, long interview in which Ethel Payne was able to tell Mammy Bradley's life in one of those what we used to call as-told-to stories that were so popular back then. That's when a reporter would sit down with somebody, take copious notes, and then rewrite it as if you're that person. Right, and Senator Eastland, of course, was this staunch segregationist oh, yeah. racist. Yeah, I mean, these names, you know, when I when I was writing this book and I'd come across all these names of these segregationists, it, I mean, it just, I don't want to give away all my politics, but boy, it, you know, it sent shivers up my spine sometimes to read about these guys. Now, another great event that she covered was the march uh, from Selma to Montgomery. She was also there when Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. This has been much in the news because of the terrific movie, Selma. Yeah. Well, uh, she, mm-hmm. she actually, at that moment, she was um, uh, exiled from reporting. She was then, for several years, working for the uh, Democratic National Committee, and she uh, because of that, she went and attended Johnson's speech on Capitol Hill, which is portrayed in the movie. If you see the movie, Selma, you'll remember the moment when Johnson gives this very dramatic speech. You'll also, if you're a careful moviegoer, notice that you can see what budgetary constraints they were acting under. Uh, that clearly couldn't be anything that would be like a hall of Congress. It's some building they, they use for the movie. It's just too small a room. But anyway, what's so dramatic in, that, in the movie and in Ethel Payne's remembrance of that night when J. Johnson gave the speech is when he said the words, their cause must be our cause, too. Because it's not just Negroes, it's really all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and justice. And then he pauses and dramatically says, and we shall overcome, which, you know, the words of the movement's anthem. And when he does that, Payne is just overcome. She goes home and writes him a letter, and she then flies to Selma to join the third attempt to make the march. This is the one in the movie where they're now protected by that federal judge who joined the police and federal troops are protecting them. But nonetheless, when she is marching with these marchers, and keep in mind they're protected, they have this, this cloak of, uh, of, of, of guards around them. She said, you could simply feel the hatred. They were, the epitaphs that were being thrown at them and yelled at them and all kinds of things I just can't say on the air. And she says, the reaction of the people is so vitriolic, you never realized how deep human hatred can be, and that's the way it was all along the march. So in some ways, for her as a northerner, the, the third march is the triumph because they're going to make it 
to Montgomery and they're going to and they're going to prevail but what she remembered the most was the incredible hatred of the whites who surrounded them as they walked and that is an amazing movie. I mean, I've seen it twice. Uh, we yeah. won't go into the controversy about that because I'd like to move on a bit. Um, well, I would say there's one parallel here, which is that I think my book and the movie and a lot of other writers are joining in and doing this, is it's time for the everyday people of the civil rights movement to get their moment in history. And that's, I think, the connection between the Selma movie and this book is that these are portrayals of people who aren't the famous leaders, who risked a lot to move the movement forward. Yeah, that's so true. Now, pain, we won't go into those things as well, though that's a terrific story, the circumstances under which she left the Defender. Yeah. But let's go to where she went back, because she got back to the Defender by covering the Vietnam War. And she didn't really cover much of the issue of whether we should be there or not. She was after a different angle. Talk about her reporting and and the unique angle that she was after. Well, she was not the first woman to cover the war, but she was the first black reporter to cover the war from the war front itself. And the way it happened was actually she didn't know this, and um, she never learned this. But African Americans at that point, were very supportive of the military and much more supportive of the war than whites were. The whites were turning against the war in 1967. And so the White House was very interested in having the black press get a a view of the war. They thought it would help them. And a lot of backroom shenanigans going on in the White House. But lo and behold, Ethel Payne is called back to work for the Chicago Defender, and the first assignment is to go and cover how Negro soldiers are doing and what, how they're faring in the war. And the reason this is so significant is this is the first desegregated war. You remember we were talking about Korea. There were black troops and white troops in Korea, but now the troops are serving together. And if anything can be said about the military's method of management is it's really a meritocracy. I mean, that's where people like Colin Powell rose up or Benjamin O. Davis and others. You succeed in the military, and if the military is devoid of the kind of racism it used to have, people of all different groups rise up. So she went to Vietnam and focused solely on how black soldiers were doing, uh, what they were doing, um, and how they were faring. And some of it was good report. I mean, reporting conveying good news, and some of it was reporting some of the problems, uh, like in one regiment where you know they, there were some racial issues, and she described them. But as a result, in a sense, she missed the bigger story of the war, and she realized that late at life. And she, by her own admission, she says that she that she failed in seeing the bigger story. But she was the first one to write really about the day-to-day life of which she would have called Negro troops back then. And her, her reporting is interesting, and it does allow me to make a bigger point about her reporting. When she wrote about the black troops in Vietnam, it's very similar to Ernie Pyle writing in World War II. It's very folksy. She often included the addresses of the soldiers in hopes that people might write to them. And she often talked about their personal needs, you know, what they were lacking in the way of food or entertainment, which is very much like Ernie Pyle did. But she also adopted that same style when she was in Montgomery and in Little Rock and other places. Her reporting was very folksy and very straightforward and almost simple in its writing style. And the reason was really, um, it took me a while to suddenly figure it out, but of course, 
so much of her readership had did not have great reading ability. African Americans, when the paper first started, were mostly illiterate at the turn of the 19th century. And by the 1950s and 60s, literacy rates were far below that of white readers. And a historical co- consequence of this is that today, when people produce collections of civil rights reporting like the Library of America did, they don't include her work. And I think this is, again, one of these issues about the legacy of segregation. They don't include it because it's not as complicated and as analytic as, say, some reporter from the New York Times. But she was writing for a different audience, and had she adopted that style, her readers would have been completely befuddled. So the the clarity of her reporting, the startling things she discovered, are almost masked by the simple approach of her writing style. And you also say that she... A combined journalism and advocacy, and I think, you know, that gets a lot of, uh, that's looked down upon a lot as a, a, in a journalistic convention, but I, I think it worked. At least that's the impression I have. What is your sense of how she combined journalism and advocacy and the role that that played in making her the figure she was? Well, Ethel Payne, when she came to Washington, she quickly realized that she was part of the story. I mean, imagine getting up in the morning and your first thought is, will I be able to get a cab ride to my job because I'm African-American? So she couldn't divorce herself from the story. She felt she was part of it. So she abandoned what many of us as journalists hold as a tenet of our craft, which is objectivity. And she replaced it with a measure of fairness, which is also something I ended up doing for my book as well. I was so influenced by that. Her coverage was particularly fair. She really covered Eisenhower in a very fair way, but her questioning and her choice of stories was much guided by her agenda. And I don't think it's completely dissimilar from a lot of journalism history. When Joseph Pulitzer's paper, The World Was Going, it started this sense that just merely lighting the dark recesses of government and our society, which is what journalism does by its reporting, effectuates change. And so by focusing on these issues, she's not as much writing stories that say, we must do X, Y, and Z. She's focusing on what is happening, which leads most readers to say, gee, this is an injustice. We must do that. So her style of reporting was, was in many ways, a historical role of reporting, not that different from others. But she was very cognizant of the fact that she herself was uh, an issue, in a sense, and had had to proceed carefully in how she formulated questions and how she wrote. And of course, there is that expression that, you know, I mean, the fifth estate uh, is supposed to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I've often used that myself. (laughs) Um, But what what interested me as a writer was that it dawned on me that here I am, a white male writing a book about a black female, and I don't know her experiences uh, except by reporting them. I kept thinking, how am I going to do this? And one of the things that uh, dawned on me was her own sense. I had to confront my whiteness and look at how I could write a fair story. And biography is very much like painting a portrait. I don't think my portrait is any truer or less true than somebody else. But if I were black and female, it would be a different portrait. So my guiding stone in this was I wanted to be fair to Ethel Payne. I let her voice speak out as much as possible because I had to cover some personal issues, her hair, her weight, her dating, things that, you know, are beyond my experience as a a 60-year-old white guy. Um, And so in a sense, I found Ethel Payne helped me guide 
me on how to write the story, which is the first time it's happened to me with a subject. And it is an amazing telling. Uh, thank you so much, James McGrath Morris, for talking with us here about your book, Eyes on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. Well, thank you. It was an honor and a pleasure to be with you. In addition to Eye on the Struggle, James McGrath Morris is the author of the acclaimed biography, Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print, and Power, and two other books. To read an excerpt from Eye on the Struggle, go to writersvoice.net. Let's go out with the voice of Ethel Payne herself from the C-SPAN interview with host Carrie Collins in 1987. In this clip, Payne discusses her advocacy approach to journalism. Collins has just asked Payne about the impact of television on the civil rights struggle. It probably was the one single thing that was responsible for bringing about the great social changes of the 60s. Uh, Because what happened was in print journalism, you read about it, mm-hmm. but in television and uh, the electronic media, it was brought right into your living room. It was like you were sitting there and like you were part of the what was going on. And so it, the eye impact had a profound effect upon the whole social change. Mm-hmm. Did it affect the way the government responded to what was I, going oh, on? Oh, very much so. Very much so because uh, uh, in Congress, and, and, and the administration, uh, I can always, I'll never forget the night that Lyndon Johnson made that address to the nation in which he said, and these lines are, were just burned into my memory and he's, when he said, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. And I think that summed up the whole thing. Did it make your job as a print journalist any easier? Well, it did. Yes, it did. I think uh, we all, as Rodney, who is it, the comedian says, I've got a lot of respect. (laughs) Yeah, Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) You got more respect. Why do you think that was? Well, because uh, I think I represented uh, part of the problem and part of the advocacy to change the problem. So you called yourself an advocate. Yes, uh uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Did that mean that you considered yourself a, a participant in the movement and... You can't help but be. You couldn't? You can't help but be. If uh, you're a black in this country, you, you, you want to be objective, but you can't help but feeling the emotion of it. And uh, so you are a part of the, of the whole fabric. That was Ethel Payne talking to Carrie Collins of C-SPAN in 1987. You can find a link to the entire interview on this week's show post at writersvoice.net. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. Then check out my blog, Francesca Rhiannon at blogspot.com. You can find lots of cool stuff there. The Writer's Voice webmaster is Bill Way. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. <laughs>